Okay, members, you're very welcome to this afternoon's meeting. Uh, Emma's pre-meeting has concluded and we're able to move on uh, at this stage to the, um, the, the committee meeting. You're very welcome. Uh, we have a number of members that are going to be participating through Starleaf. Um, first of all, apologies. We've received apologies from Trevor Lunn. Any other apologies? Well, Pat's coming in through Starleaf, he said. Yeah, he's he might. He could yet. be on that list there, which oh, hasn't okay. been moved across okay. yet, but we'll get him in if he's there very quickly. Sorry, Hello. Hello, Hello, Emma. Tell her that's us live now. I think, yes, we, we can hear you. No, no, we were, we were very well impressed with your level of advice. It was excellent. <laughs> we, we were impressed. <laughs> okay, we're on item two, draft minutes. Are on page six of the meeting. Are uh, members content to uh, that they're a true reflection of the meeting? Then we can sign those. Um, matters arising. Members, on page three of the table pack uh, is a joint You're statement. Going to move that until I know they said to take it now just because they're, they're not going to. Yeah, so we can go very, very, very rapid. Oh, right, okay. It'll be done. Uh, table three of the, uh, the table pack is a joint statement from the co chairs of the EU UK Joint Committee announcing that agreement in principle have been reached on the outstanding issues relating to the implementation of the withdrawal agreement, including border control post entry points, specifically for checks and animals, plants and derived products, export declarations, the supply of medicines, the supply of chilled meats and other food products to supermarkets and a clarification on the application of state aid under the terms of the protocol. An agreement principle has also been reached in respect of the decisions that the Joint Committee has to take before the 1st of January, including practical arrangements regarding the EU's presence in Northern Ireland when UK authorities implement checks and controls under the protocol, determining criteria for goods to be considered not at risk of entering the EU and moving from Great Britain to Northern Ireland and the exemption of agricultural and fish subsidies from state aid rules, the finalisation of the list of chairpersons of the arbitration panel for the dispute settlement mechanism so that the arbitration panel can start operating as of next year, as well as the correction of errors and omissions in Annex 2 of the protocol. In view of these mutually agreed solutions, the UK will withdraw clauses 44, 45 and 47 of the UK Internal Market Bill and not introduce any similar provisions in the Taxation Bill. This agreement principle and the resulting draft text will now be subject to respective internal procedures in the EU and in the UK. And once this is done, a fifth regular meeting of the EU-UK Joint Committee will be convened formally to adopt them. And this will take place in the coming days and before the end of the year. Would, as a suggestion to members, if we asked officials from the Executive Office to provide us with an oral briefing at next week's meeting, just to get a full resume of where we are, what the most up-to-date position is, and then what may need to take place after that, and just given that we will be unlikely to secure a written briefing and that, that we would just secure an oral briefing, would members be happy with that? Yeah, I would like a wee bit of emphasis on the um, Article 2 the omissions and the anything that they're talking about changing there, because I didn't understand that part of it when I seen that written. Okay, so we could request specific evidence, and given that we've got those other people coming in next week afterwards as well, that would all uh, fit in well. Yep. Okay, um, on page four of the table pack, a written departmental briefing on the uh, executive office work strands under new decade, new approach. Uh, the briefing was scheduled for last week's meeting, but had to be removed from the agenda as the executive office didn't provide the paper in advance of the meeting. 
Um, the letter has been issued from myself to the First and Deputy First Minister expressing the Committee's concern and disappointment at the continuing failure to provide papers in line with the agreed timescale. The briefing has been rearranged for the 20th of January, um, but page 13 of the meeting pack... Um, is that separate issue? No, that, that, but that letter has gone. On page 13 of the meeting pack is a copy of correspondence from the House of Lords EU Committee to the Minister of State at the Foreign and Commonwealth Office regarding the European Commission Work Programme. The EU Committee has raised specific issues with regard to the implications of the Commission's Work Programme for Northern Ireland, including asking questions on which of the Commission's proposals fall within the scope of the protocol and what plans the Government has to ensure that Northern Ireland's interests are taken into account in the EU legislative processes. Um, we may wish to write to the European Union Committee asking for a copy of that response when it's received. Would members agree? Yeah, yeah. Uh, just to go back to your previous point, because we, we raised something similar today in the Infrastructure Committee, just lastminute.com, being told that officials weren't turning up uh, before the committee. So we have suggested that it may be something that the chairs of the committee may want a conversation about, because it seems to be happening to a number of committees, not just this committee. Okay. Yes, Pat, go on ahead. Uh, thanks. Um, just uh, in regard to the issue of the written paper that didn't arrive, uh, after the meeting last week I went and spoke to the Deputy First Minister and she told me that she had previously approved the paper to come in front of the committee, so uh, the delay certainly wasn't there. So I suppose it's a matter of uh, a process of elimination to find out where the delay is. Thanks. thanks. Thanks, Pat. And uh, hopefully the response to the letter will, will provide the opportunity for that to be detailed. And as Martina has said, I intend to raise it at the Chairman's Liaison Forum for all the chairs of all the various committees as well, if it is an issue that's been replicated across various departments yes, to have it addressed. So, okay, members, item four then, Brexit House of Lords Common Framework Scrutiny Committee. On pages 16 to 134 of the meeting pack are the relevant papers, and page 13 of the table pack are a copy of written evidence submitted to the Common Framework Scrutiny Committee that might be of interest. What page? Um, <clears throat> page 16 to 134 and 13 of the table pack. The House of Lords Common Framework Scrutiny Committee is in attendance via Starleaf to join us or to permit us to be able to uh, give evidence to them as part of their inquiry. Um, the committee is specifically considering how the Common Frameworks programme will operate and relate to other initiatives, how it could be reviewed and improved for the future, and the role of the parliamentary scrutiny across the UK. So hopefully we'll get ourselves linked up with the members of that committee now if the communications team are able to add everybody in. Well, there's quite a number to, to add in there, so we'll just let them all get added up. So we'll just wait on everybody just getting added into the spotlight. Just a few more to come in. waiting on a few more people being added. I see Paul Murphy is still there to be added in from the audience, please. 
Um, That's fine. Um, if everybody that is on by Starleaf, if they were able to mute themselves, it just means there isn't competing, uh, there'd be competing opportunities to come into the main screen. So if people are just muted, and then maybe if we asked Elizabeth Andrews if she's there, uh, maybe just to unmute herself and if she's on. Hello, Mr. McGrath. Yes, Kay Andrews here. Okay. Very good to hear you. Thank you. Okay, excellent. So, look, um, Kay, we're, we're in your hands then. We're, we're providing the um, evidence to yourselves and we're, we're delighted to be able to do that. Um, I think maybe a number of your members will, will have questions and I suppose I think the, um, the sort of etiquette that we're uh, leaning towards is that if you wanted to direct the question to myself, I can then offer it out to a member to answer and if the questions come via you and the answers via me, we'll, we'll between us keep good order. Well, we can certainly try. Thank you very much indeed. It's, it's, it's quite a lot of us on this call. Um, it's, it's really good to see you, and I want to just to thank you for your time. Thank you for your committee support in this inquiry. Um, we, are, um, we won't have time to introduce ourselves individually except when we ask our questions. But I'm sure you know people on this call already, and uh, you know we, we are all extremely good friends. Some of our committee is absent because we've got competing business in the chamber, and there will be a few eminent and rather important votes, but we can manage that on our phones, I think. And we've only got a short time, so we've got a short number of questions, but they are important, and of course, uh, we have been uh, taking evidence from, the, from Wales, from Scotland, from the ministers, and from academics and from stakeholders. And it's a great pleasure to actually now get your views on the process of the Common Frameworks Programme and how it's working and how you uh, you see the parliamentary scrutiny of the We not have a look, but we can carry on, I think. Uh, we work with intending to do a process in terms of four government brought as closely as possible together and that our future scrutiny will be robust and effective. And so your evidence today about that process and our parliamentary um, relationships are, is extremely important to us. Um, so thank you again. And I'm going to start off, if I may, with, with a very basic question, which is, what role has the Northern Ireland Assembly been playing uh, play so far in scrutinising the common frameworks and in relation to your relationship with the Northern Ireland executive during the process? And what's your impression, McGrath, of the common frameworks programme to date? Okay, thank, thank you very much for, for that question. Please refer to me as Colin because it's either the police or my mother that refers to me as M Mr. McGrath at times I'm in trouble, so I, I'll go for that. Um, <laughs> we, um, I, I suppose I, I've had a little bit of, of apprehension in, in, in presenting um, to yourselves in, this, in your committee because um, I feel that there's somewhat of a deficit insofar as we, we really don't have 
extensive knowledge of common frameworks. We don't have extensive knowledge of what they are, what they're going to do. Um, there is obviously a unique uh, position in terms of the Northern Ireland Assembly and Executive insofar as compared to the other devolved administrations because the other devolved administrations by and large have a, a sort of unified uh, approach from what is their government um, whereas here we have um, a, a disputed position. Uh, our committee as an executive office committee is to scrutinise the role of the executive office and as I say in that office there are competing opinions um, and competing uh, outcomes uh, wanted from that process of Brexit and as a result of that um, getting agreement within that office for information, uh, perspective uh, and approach can be difficult to get and that's not to, to level that at one side or the other, that's just a, a pretty human answer that if two people uh, have a different view on something, asking them to get an agreed view which they then present to this committee to have it scrutinised is going to be a very difficult process. In terms of the common frameworks Thus far, only four have had to be presented to the Assembly. Uh, I understand one is at the, our Infrastructure Committee, one is at our Justice Committee and two at our Health Committee, um, although I could stand correct, but I think that's where, where the four of them currently are. So those individual committees will be providing a certain amount of scrutiny to the uh, the nuts and bolts of what that common framework will actually do and why it's required and how it can actually be uh, delivered within that department. But even in taking uh, that, because of the nature of our five-party um, executive, that means that there's a, a, an Ulster Unionist department, a DUP department, an SDLP department that are providing scrutiny and to be coordinated by an executive office which is headed by Sinn Féin and DUP. So, you know, all of the competing views and opinions are there. Um, we, we often use the adage of, of, of the, uh, the fact that the, the, the Brexit is a form of divorce um, and really, I suppose, um, just like a couple of families on the periphery during a divorce, there's some things that you just don't talk about. And I think that here, the views that people have uh, and the perspectives that people have have been impacting how an official position has gotten to. But ultimately, that does cause a democratic deficit of forms because we're not really getting the capacity to scrutinise uh, the governance of the common frameworks rather than the, the individual committees are still getting that opportunity to investigate the nuts and the bolts of how that common framework will actually work in practice. Um, and we do know that, for example, yourselves have requested uh, that the devolved executives and governments would present to you and use of uh, find it difficult to secure somebody from here. And I think that other committees in the House of Commons and House of Lords that have sought uh, input from the devolved administrations have had that input from Wales and from Scotland um, but haven't been able to secure that from here. So there is probably, to sum up, um, Kay, a, 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 quite a, a shortage uh, in the things that we're not talking about rather than the things that we are talking about. Well, thank you very much indeed, Colin. That was an extremely helpful um, explanation and introduction for us. And uh, 
You know, these are novel and innovative processes anyway. We saw the minister last week and she said we could expect 30 such frameworks, in fact, by the end of the year in some shape or form. So we all have our work cut out, but I'm very, very glad that we have a chance to talk about I can I hand over now to Lord Kane, to Jonathan Kane, with his question? Um, hi, Colin, can you hear me okay? Yes, we can indeed, Jonathan, good to see you again. Good to see you and uh, all those that I've uh, had dealings with extensively um, over the years who are members of the committee. It's uh, very good to talk to you. I've got three rapid questions, um, two of which you've actually sort of touched on in your um, reply to, uh, uh, to Kay, um, but um, I'll fire away anyway. Um, firstly, um, how engaged um, do you think the uh, Northern Ireland Executive has been with the Common Frameworks Programme? Um, uh, I know from experience, obviously, that the Northern Ireland Office was involved in Common Frameworks uh, from 2017 until uh, the Executive was restored in, uh, in January. But how disadvantaged do you think uh, Northern Ireland was in, in the Common Frameworks process uh, due to the uh, lack of an Executive in the Assembly for, for three years? And finally, at the risk of being slightly more controversial, um, what, um, what concerns would members of the committee have um, over the possibility of divergence between uh, Northern Ireland and Great Britain? I'm going to pass to the deputy chair, Doug Beatty, to answer that question. Well, Ken, um, really, really good to see you. You're, you're, you're looking as young as ever. Thanks, uh, Jonathan, please. Yeah. Jonathan, uh, I mean, you, you, you hit a really good point. The fact is that <coughs> we had no devolved government for such a long period of time really has put us on the, the back foot. Um, I suppose, I suppose with, with everything coming down the, the tracks, we had a real difficult body of work to do before um, COVID came into it, and that's just made it e e even worse. Um, I, I, I think there's, there's a real attempt to try and catch up in that deficit um, uh, and, and, and try and engage um, as much as we possibly, as possibly can. And I think the executive is, is doing a good job in regards to that, uh, in trying to, to, to catch up. But, but we are still on catch-up, and, and therefore we're maybe not getting all of the information all the way down from the top right down to the scrutiny committees, for the scrutiny committees to really understand how these frameworks are, are actually working and how they're going to impact uh, as a whole. I mean, if you take one as an individual framework, you can, you can look at that and you can look at the nuts and bolts of that and you can see how that will work um, you know, post, post um, the, the transition period. But it's when you try to look at how that then feeds into other ones is, is where we have the, the, the problem. Is There's a bit of not joined up thinking when it gets outside of the executive and maybe gets down into um, com committee levels. Um, in regards to the, the, the concerns about um, derogation, I, I suppose things are rapidly changing. Um, uh, uh, you know, uh, and we're trying to keep up with the changes, the changes today, and, and I know... Um, Christopher Stalford wants to jump in maybe on this one, but uh, I guess, you know, we're, we're concerned. I mean, I think Colin explained it well, and you know it well anyway. You know, we, we all do have competing, competing views about where we should be going um, within yeah. the United Kingdom or, or, or elsewhere. Uh, and I think there are just those huge concerns there. And, um, you know, we're trying to digest some of the information which is coming to us. And, and we're doing that even today as we're speaking to you. We're trying to digest what's being said. 
um, uh, by Michael Gove. So, so I think you raised a really good point at the very start, um, Jonathan, and that is that we started behind the curve with no executive, and I don't think we've caught up yet, and we don't have that jointery with committees and the executive that, that, that we wish we would have had just at this stage. Um, hello, <coughs> hello, Jonathan, good to see you again. Um, hope, all's, hope all's well at your end. Um, um, I mean, my understanding is that there are 160 areas where these common frameworks will apply to Northern Ireland, which is more than, more than any other um, devolved, devolved region. And um, as, this, as these powers are returned to uh, Whitehall from Brussels, then passed on to us, and there are serious implications around uh, things like the Sewell Convention, and what that means for the for the devolution settlement um, throughout the United Kingdom, not just pertaining to to Northern Ireland. And I think it's important that um, I mean, obviously, I, I am a devolutionist to believe in devolution. But I think it's important that as much of that competency. Now, there's certain areas, obviously, that um, cannot go from from the centre to the devolved uh, regions. But I think it's important that. As much of that that relates directly to the work of the assembly should come to the assembly in order to prevent potential conflict in the future uh, around exercising powers between uh, Stormont and Westminster. Um, divergence is a major concern uh, for me, and I have to say um, I don't know what uh, has been produced in terms of an outcome, but uh, it has been. An, I think it has been an inevitability since um, government policy in Whitehall appears to be cater, uh, pointing in the direction of divergence, then it's not particularly surprising that that is the outcome that it will produce. But as someone that believes in, someone that believes in the United Kingdom, that is a source of regret to me, and it's a particular source of regret that it's a Conservative and Unionist government that's presiding over such a situation. I couldn't possibly comment on yeah. that. <laughs> um, thank you for that. I, I could come back, but I know that uh, Margaret's uh, quite keen to come in. So. Um, thank you, Jonathan. Margaret, over to you. Um, thank you, Kay and Colin uh, and uh, colleagues. Thank you for this opportunity uh, to have a conversation with yourself. And I think I still recognise that room that you're in, <laughs> and you're still getting tea and coffee. But notwithstanding that, what impact do you think that the Northern Ireland Protocol could have on Northern Ireland's participation in the Common Framework Programme in the future? And we all know, and you referred to it earlier yourselves, um, that, the, that um, the Northern Ireland Protocol was approved in principle um, yesterday evening, and will now go for a final approval to the Joint Ministerial Committee. And a final question. What do you think the implications of that will be in terms of the relationship between the protocol and the Common Frameworks Programme? Thank you. Okay, um, thank you for that uh, question, Margaret. I suppose one always has to be careful when constituents are actually on uh, in, in the, the star leaf. You have to be extra careful because you could get into a lot of trouble with your answers. So uh, I, I will tread carefully. Um, yeah, I suppose um, it, it kind of, my thoughts on that is it does dovetail uh, somewhat from Jonathan's question insofar as the divergence issue. 
um, that there, you know, that uh, there is the potential um, that divergence could equal division whenever it comes to to um, the Northern Ireland Assembly uh, and executive. So something may start. Uh, in London as, or, or Brussels as divergence, but could, will be defined as division um, by the time that it gets to here, um, because there will be that push and pull um, that the protocol says that you stick to one set of rules, um, but obviously a common framework could be suggesting that you go somewhere else. And there is concern um, that there will be some sort of democratic deficit insofar as um, if some of those divergences are occurring, those decisions will be taken in London to trump Belfast or in Brussels to trump what London is saying. So we, we really are going to be caught in between um, and the, you know, the difficulty is going to probably be initially a period of confusion, uh, a period of which rules do people follow and then the impact of that we can see now what, what confusion and the impact that it has uh, on businesses and on communities right across the north uh, and anything that adds to that or uh, continues to that in the future uh, would be difficult. Um, I was part of a call this morning with the Deputy Ambassador from Canada with other party representatives and you know there there is um, I think maybe it will be a quicker ramification of certain matters in Scotland maybe the issue of uh, an independence question, which may come from the fact that if people don't want to diverge from particular uh, sets of guidelines and rules, you know, people will be starting to get unsettled at the rules that are being uh, pushed upon them uh, from London through potential common frameworks. Um, and I think that it would only be a short period of time before that type of sentiment uh, would be transposing across the RSC if we were, as part of the protocol, sticking to one set of guidelines but we're being forced by London uh, to adhere to a different set of rules that that could cause real confusion, real concern uh, and real division um, at the end of the day. But I'm going to pass to Martina Anderson to, to continue with that. Hello Margaret, nice to see you and uh, Jonathan and Kay uh, before you. Um, I hi, hi. I just want to say that I think where in the past we had EU law, uh, we had that consistency created um, across this island and obviously with ourselves and Britain. What has happened, I think, in Britain in trying to develop this common approach, common framework across what they were called the UK, did not take account of the protocol and did not take account of particularly the third principle that the British government had in, the common framework, which was recognition of the economic and social linkage, North and South. So I think uh, whilst we're talking about divergence, we know that across the island, and, and I make no apology uh, for fighting as hard as I did in Europe to ensure that we had regulatory convergence across this island, and the 151 areas where here intersects with EU law, then we have a situation where the British have tried to produce a common framework in the context of uh, what they would call the United Kingdom, pulling in here the North, and they talk about four nations, of course this is not a nation, but they took that approach to it, and they hadn't taken account 
of the protocol and the All-Ireland element of it. And I'll give you one example, Margaret. Uh, this morning in the Infrastructure Committee, we had a statutory rule that had been brought to forward uh, in terms of transport to the committee a number of weeks ago. And every time the statutory rules came forward, which was removing the EU law, the, the reference to EU law from, for instance, this piece of legislation, I was interrogating and questioning because I didn't really understand what was happening and didn't appreciate it too much, only to discover this morning that they had further legal advice to come in and tell us that you couldn't change it because national domestic law cannot change EU law when there is a relationship with the protocol. And my concern with this process that obviously you are doing sterling work and what you are involved in, but um, my concern is that this has been done under the auspice of a UK approach as opposed to taking account of the All-Ireland approach, Strand 2 of the Good Friday Agreement, the 151 areas that intersect here with EU law and with the island of Ireland. And therefore, I would say that whatever about the time that was spent uh, when the assembly wasn't up and running, I think it's losing a little bit of credibility to be saying, well, because we didn't have an assembly, work wasn't done. We have civil servants who did excellent work. Uh, during that period of time, but of course there was a democratic deficit during that time and that is something that, that we all recognise. So Margaret, I think it's something that you should do maybe in your committee is to be looking at this common framework in the context of Strand 2, the All-Ireland element, the protocol, because it's not going to be the same across the board and that's something that the committee needs to take account of. Um, could I thank you um, for that, uh, um, Martina. But obviously you would appreciate knowing me that I would be raising the Northern Ireland Protocol every time of course. that we actually meet in committee. Maybe I hand back it to our chair or whoever. Could I just say, Margaret, there's, there's one thing, Margaret. The powers uh, going from Brussels to here will come here. They don't have to travel a journey to London. Now, of course, we have the Internal Market Bill and we have that clause in it which allows the British government to interfere and whilst they've said they're going to remove some of those clauses, I think they're going to come and ask our advice in terms of uh, an LCM and then if we don't agree with it, they'll ignore us, as, as, as they've always done. Thank you very much, Margaret. Thank you, Martin. Thank you, Colin. Really, really interesting to take a dialogue. Uh, can I ask uh, Paul Murphy for, to come uh, ask his question? Somebody I'm sure you know Paul and his very distinguished career in relation to Northern Ireland. Thank you, Kay, and um, uh, great to be here, even if it's virtually in Northern Ireland, to see <laughs> you, Colin, and your colleagues. Um, my question is about stakeholders and what information have you received, if any, regarding the engagement of different stakeholders in Northern Ireland during the development of the common frameworks. And are any, if any, the Northern Ireland stakeholders supportive of the of the programme? Okay. Thank you, Paul, for that question. Good to see you again. Normally we encounter each other at BIPA, so um, it's uh, it's good to see you again via here because that hasn't been taking place over the past year uh, or so. Um, I suppose, they're, they're, like everything else, there will always be two answers or two avenues that can be taken uh, for 
this um, this answer to this question. Number one would be through the official um, lines in terms of uh, stakeholders giving evidence to committees, etc., and, and being consulted with. Um, I have been temporarily sitting on the health committee, so um, I've had an opportunity to, to see those um, st you know, those two uh, common frameworks discussed at that committee. But I would have to say that the engagement with stakeholders has been very, very limited. Um, now, again, we'll, I'll share this, we'll share out the answer in a moment, and maybe members that are on other committees um, will be able to explain, because obviously the health committee has had, like everything else, it's, it's had COVID to deal with and have all the ramifications from that. So there maybe hasn't been the ability to give the attention that is required. And, and just jumping back to something um, that uh, Jonathan had mentioned earlier, he had asked about sort of, um, the period of devolution, and you know, we we do know that the initial work that was done for common frameworks was uh, as far back as March two thousand and eighteen. So there there was the best part of two years when a lot of work that was being done uh, in drafting and developing uh, and contributing to the progress uh, of the common frameworks was being done whenever we didn't have the executive here and therefore that uh, interaction that maybe would have taken on a more formal route of bringing people in to present in front of committees and to listen to stakeholders and hear exactly what they're saying, that that opportunity was missed. And then from the governance perspective now, we haven't had a chance to get um, the department to come in and explain to us what the uh, officials were doing in the period that we didn't have, because it could very well be the case that officials were out engaging with the sectors and engaging um, with stakeholders, but w we haven't been updated formally on that taking place. Um, and again, it all feeds back to that very initial remark where I made that I was somewhat apprehensive about discussing this with you because I feel our understanding and knowledge of it is so limited um, and, and you know, not having that, that knowledge. Now, the other route, obviously, as political parties, we will engage with stakeholders, we will engage with sectors, we will listen uh, to the views uh, of the sectors that are out there. Um, and obviously, amid the confusion that there is amongst the sectors and the confusion that there is uh, amongst the business community and others, and them desperately wanting some form of, uh, uh, you know, some sort of answers to what's going to take place, they uh, would have uh, generally looked at the common frameworks as something that was going to be a solution to a problem. Uh, it may not be the problem that they wanted and it may not have been the solution that they wanted, but it was providing structure, guidance and direction uh, for them. But that isn't a formal submission to any uh, assembly committee. That would be in our engagement with stakeholders um, via our political party route. I'm going to pass on to Martina to give us some more. I think just to add, to add, Paul, uh, to what our chair has said, like we um, had a stakeholders engagement with 11 councils um, last week and the week before, sort of concluded it, and not one of the councils mentioned the common framework. There's 11 councils here in the north. Now, that's not to extrapolate that they're all ignorant about them, but I don't think that they're engaging with them. I think that's what it told us because they were actually given us a briefing about the implications of being dragged out of the EU for some of us against our will and the implications that that was going to have in their councils, particularly around funding. And they mentioned a whole raft of issues, 
but the common framework didn't seem to be on their radar at all. So that's just a weather frame of information that might inform your thinking. Thank you very much indeed, Paul. Thank you, Auntie and Colin. Chair, Chair, can, 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 maybe just, I, I'm very conscious, and it's been maybe uh, amiss of me, that there are three members of our committee that are actually amongst your number on the, um, on the, the Starleaf. We have um, Pat Sheehan, Emma Sheeran, and George Robinson, in fact, Trevor Clark as well. Would it be fair, maybe just, Chair, if we asked any of them at this stage if they had anything that they wanted to contribute to the responses that we've mentioned so far? Are, are there any of the, the members of the committee that are on Starleaf maybe want to add anything to what's been said at the moment? This is normally where there's a silence, thing. Yeah. <laughs> but I didn't want to not include them in, in that case, just in case there was. So I'll pass back to yourself. Yeah, welcome, Thank you very much, Kay, and uh, good afternoon, Colin and members of the committee. It's, it's very good to be with you today. Um, and it's, it's been very interesting to hear uh, the issues you feel are, are coming through on common frameworks. As uh, you said yourself, Colin, um, Northern Ireland is most affected by the common frameworks. And, um, this is something that uh, you know is really important when it comes to scrutiny and transparency. And you may feel that you've you've said enough about um, whether or not you're satisfied with the uh, scrutiny uh, internally uh, in your own legislature of of the frameworks up till now. But if you wanted to say any more about that, please do. And in the future, once they're implemented, I know that our committee are very keen that we continue that scrutiny, that we have annual reports, that um, the development of these frameworks are not, is not done behind closed doors. And so um, I, I wondered how you felt about future scrutiny of the frameworks. Thank you. Thank you, um, Christine. Well, I suppose ultimately um, my sort of immediate reaction to that is that if the common frameworks actually impact upon business and impact upon communities and impact upon people's lives, then it is incredibly important that as we move forward that there is continued scrutiny of the common frameworks and the impact that they actually have on people's lives. And, and the democratic um, structures should be there to be able to do that. So in other words, people can approach their MLAs or their MPs or their MSPs or whoever and can articulate the concerns and the issues that they have. And then there should be a mechanism for that to be fed back and if required, adjustments made. Um, that's good democracy. Uh, and I think, I suppose, in some respects, many people have become very um, disheartened by democracy, maybe disheartened with the outcome uh, of referendums and others, but I think we always need to hold true to the fact that in a democratic society as ours, being able to articulate your views to people that represent you and ultimately, if required, that can influence change is what our societies are built on and that that should continue uh, as we move forward um, with these common frameworks because they will ultimately have an impact on people's lives. 
I'm happy to pass over now to, to Christopher Stalford to, to yes, continue. Uh, thank you. I mean, my understanding in terms of the dictionary definition that one would use for common frameworks, an agreed approach to a particular policy, including the implementation and governance of it. Well, governance isn't a, a one-off event. It's a constant. It's a constant process. It's a continuous process, particularly where you know things change, and especially if we're looking for actually improved uh, governance and improved approaches. That's why I think going forward, uh, common frameworks. And I think Martine is right in terms of. The level of knowledge or uh, awareness, probably is a better word, the level of awareness that's out there about these um, areas is limited. But this is going to, these are going to impact, particularly in Northern Ireland, but throughout the United Kingdom, these are going to impact upon people's everyday lives. And that's where I think actually they may provide uh, an aegis under which the devolved institutions and Westminster are actually having to pull closer together in, in terms of overseeing those particular areas and the implementation of the common frameworks and the governance of those particular policy areas. So it's going to require a, a much more increased level of coordination and um, communication from uh, the centre uh, to the devolved regions. Thank you. Martina will add to that as well then, Martina Anderson. I, th I think, Christine, just looking at, you know, EU law I've always regarded as the floor and not the ceiling. And any deregulation that may take place when we're talking about convergence um, across England and Scotland and Wales, if that is the case, because we have a protocol here, um, I'm hoping that that's not going to at least dilute any of the protections that we that we may have in place but when you look at whether it's food safety and hygiene law or you know hazardous substance uh, you could go through the list you know drivers licensing for instance you know you may have a common framework that that the British government is proposing that might be applicable in Britain but when you come to Ireland and come to the north of Ireland and where I live in Derry you know, we're being told that in the north, for us to travel to our brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and friends and, and relatives that literally are two or three miles away from my own uh, house, that I need a green card to do that. But someone can come from Germany, France, Italy, Spain, to Ireland, into Donegal, and they don't. You know, so you're going to find that there are issues like that, that we're going to need some convergence across the island as opposed to the, the kind of common framework approach that's been taken here. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, Martin. Thank you. I'll come to our final question, actually, and it's Baroness Rice-General. Good afternoon, and uh, I'm delighted uh, to be able to talk to you this afternoon. Um, uh, you outlined your experience so far in Northern Ireland. Um, however, have your committees had any contact with the committees, uh, the subject committees, those affected by common frameworks, in the other devolved legislatures? Uh, have, has there been any joint working? And if not, do you think there should be, and would you welcome joint working either with parliamentary committees uh, for the UK Parliament or those in the other legislatures? And 
Um, what about the uh, potential in the future for the Interparliamentary Forum or the British-Irish Parliamentary Assembly to play a role? Okay, thank, thank you very much um, for, for that, uh, Jenny. I suppose the, um, the, the, there's a couple of different levels that um, uh, maybe we could explain that. The first is that um, the individual committees, as I've highlighted, there's only four thus far of the 30-odd common frameworks that have actually made it into our system here. And of those, um, those individual committees that they go to, the Agriculture Committee, the Infrastructure Committee, and uh, the Health Committee, that they uh, may well have had interactions with their, um, uh, the, the committees from other jurisdictions. Um, in terms of our role, we, we haven't really had anything presented to, to us to say you're, here is a common frameworks approach and therefore for us to scrutinise it. Um, and I think that that could be for one of potentially three reasons. One, it could be because we, were, uh, we weren't sitting for so long because um, we didn't have uh, the assembly here. Only, it only came back in January, so we're playing a lot of catch-up. Uh, in some respects. Um, a second strand could be uh, because COVID, coronavirus has taken over, we've went into remote uh, meetings during much of sort of April, May, June, and then uh, as we move now, uh, we're, we're, we're starting to get a sense of the deadline that's coming up and there's been lots of other priorities. Um, and I'll brush over the third one because I've forgotten it by this stage of answering it, so I'll stick to there being two, and if the third one comes back into my head, I I'll come back to you. But I know that Christopher was looking to, to yeah, join in uh, this. Just on that, actually I think that the, um, common frameworks actually could be an area of work for the British-Irish Council to consider taking on. Um, this is obviously the membership of, the, of, uh, of BIC, Obviously, Ireland, the United Kingdom, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, Guernsey, the Isle of Man, and Jersey. And um, given the sort of interrelationships that there are on these islands and uh, with the Crown dependencies, it may actually be, a, a, as an ongoing uh, piece of work rolling forward, it may actually be the common frameworks is something that the British Irish Council might consider taking on as an area of work. Um, and I think that would be helpful. Thanks, Christopher. I suppose I've remembered my third point. It was the, the potential that the lack of an agreed position within the executive office means that it's very difficult for the executive office to present a position to which we then would scrutinise. Um, so that can create a bit of a difficulty as well. But I do certainly think that moving forward, they are definitely something that we should be giving more attention and more scrutiny to, especially as more of them come, come on board. Um, Martina? Well, I, I think it would be just, um, it would be wrong to give the impression that it's just a difference of opinion within the executive office. There's difference of opinion within the executive. It's a five-party uh, coalition and there's four anti-Brexit parties and one not. Um, well, two not, actually. Um, so maybe there's three in, three in, three in two actually. Yeah. But um, you know, the I think the what Christopher said. There's a strand three of the Good Friday Agreement. It is the British Irish um, element of it. There will be 
intersections of EU law that are aligned across this island, and that's what the protocol is going to allow with having access to um, the single market for goods, the EU single market, and to be in the EU custom union code. So we have got, and you also then have the British government's relationship with here as well. So at times we're going to have to see where we can align all of that because what we don't want, we don't want businesses to be adversely affected any more than what they are going to be because of Brexit, because of the protocol um, in, on the island of Ireland. At least they know they can, they can work across the island of Ireland and get access into the EU. So that's been appreciated by most who trade across the island. So there's going to be work that needs done with the institutions in the south. And we did actually last week have a meeting with the committee in Leinster House. And we were going to have a meeting with the Good Friday Agreement Committee as well. So I don't think it's something that we would be adverse to having meetings with anyone that's going to at least align policy um, across this island that's going to be for the benefit of all the people who live here. Maybe just to add as well to that, Jenny, I'm conscious, I, I, I do my other committee often by Starleaf and there's an awful frustration if you're, if you're left in the audience, you're not able to unmute yourself. So our other committee members are in the audience and are unable to unmute themselves. So uh, could I ask if Pat and Emma, George and Trevor could be unmuted by our comms team here just to ask if those uh, if they have any perspective they want to raise or if they want to raise their hands they use the raise hand function to see if there's something that they want to add to any of the questions that have been asked thus far say um emma are you you happy enough there or would you like to contribute anything what kind of sound no i think Yes, yeah, we've got you, we've got you. Oh, sorry, it was all handy, you know, then yeah. No, uh, everything's been covered. Okay. Obviously, the implications of this, none of them are positive for the North, but um, I suppose an awful lot of this, we feel like the decision has been made for us and there's not an awful lot of input that we can have, which is frustrating, but no, thank you, and um, uh, everything's been covered. And Pat, yourself, Pat there, have you anything that, i just give you, i call you by name, I know that they'll bring you in on the screen, just so, Pat, have you anything else yeah. that you want to add there? No, Gerard, nothing to add, Martina's covered all the issues, thanks. Okay, uh, George, have you anything you want to add to any of the questions before we finish up? Okay, and uh, Trevor Clark, have you anything that you wanted to add there at all? Perfect, that's Grant. Thank you, Trevor. Thank you. Um, so, Jenny, is there anything, sorry, just back to yourself on your question that you wanted to, uh, to seek any clarification? Apologies. No, that's fine, thank you. Yeah. Colin, I can see that uh, Jonathan's got his hand up. Okay. So, could we take a question from Jonathan, please? Thanks, Kelly. And very, very quickly, just to come back to what um, Christopher was saying about the British Irish Council, um, which is something we've discussed in our internal meetings um, before, and about you know, how it could be involved um, in the common frameworks process. Um, I think I probably attended more meetings at, at BIC than anybody, with the exception of Martin McGuinness, um, over the years. Um, um, and his records, I suspect, is unlikely to be equaled. Um, but um, um, it's really, Christopher, do you not, 
Absolutely agree with that, and I think that that's actually something that we should look at. So, no, uh, yeah. you're absolutely right in terms of the impact that it, it presently has or can have. But yes, it would require fundamental reform of its role. Um, but I think that would be something worth considering. Yeah, I agree. And also, maybe Jonathan, just on an informal basis, the, there was talk pre-COVID that there was some form of inter-parliamentary forum that, that would meet that was looking at Brexit full stop. But I just know that that, that hasn't even happened virtually uh, over the period of time and that the, the ability to share uh, in any forum any concerns about any part of Brexit or common frameworks, has there hasn't been much connection at all. But again, uh, it does seem to happen at executive level between the various devolved regions, but um, at the sort of assembly-based level, there seems to be very little connections for people um, to discuss any concerns. So, um, Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. Well, Chair, if you are happy with that, sadly, I think we, we better draw to a conclusion because this is such an incredibly uh, helpful, constructive exchange extremely important for us to have the role of our parliaments validated and the role of parliamentary exchanges and scrutiny validated because in such a complex situation which we now understand from your own words uh, very helpfully um, it's very good to know that we can make contact and i hope we can stay in contact because basically we are going to have to deal with common frameworks and uh, there will be, you know, in the new year, it will be a, a different situation, but it, it, no less relevant. And the more we can do to keep channels of communication open, to keep, keep information and intelligence flowing between us, I think that would be extremely helpful. I hope also that our committee can, can take what you said for us and make sure that that is understood by um, the departments and the uh, rest of the island and, of course, uh, us, the, the stakeholders ministers who come to us. So can I thank you most warmly on behalf of each of us, and not only the people that you can see on screen who ask questions, but other members of the committee who have been listening um, off stage, as it were, and the members of the committee who weren't able to be here today, and very sad they were too. But I think we've had an incredibly productive hour, and a very interesting one, and helpful. So thank you, Colin, for the way you checked it. Thank you, colleagues, for the way you responded to our questions. Really, really helpful to us indeed. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank okay, you. thank you thank to you. you and your committee. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye. Okay. And just members right across it, we just take maybe two or three minutes of take our ease for a couple of minutes till we get the next people set up. Okay, members, we'll start back again after that short break. Uh, we're going to move on now to item five, the EU funding programme participation in EU programmes in the future, and it's an oral evidence session from departmental officials. Uh, we are, if I can refer members to page 135 to 180 of the meeting pack, page 20 of your table pack for the briefing paper, um, 
And just to advise members that departmental officials from both the Executive Office and the Department of Finance are in attendance today to brief members on the EU funding programme and participation in EU funding programmes in the future. Uh, likewise, the, uh, the paper that was tabled uh, was late, but we've given the exception on the basis that uh, it was two committees that were coming together and to try and get that turned around. We appreciate that that's not always the easiest to do, so uh, we've allowed that to be included, uh, even though it was late in getting the members. But we got it on Monday, so members should hopefully have had a chance to read through it. So I'm going to uh, welcome at this stage uh, Dominic McCullough, who is head of the EU division from the Department of Finance. Uh, and Laura MacDonald, who is Head of Future Funding and the EU Exit Coordination in the Department of Finance, who are both in the room with us. You're very welcome. And also to Lorraine Linus, who is the EU Futures Relations Division in the Executive Office, who is joining us there by Starleaf. So we can hear you, uh, Lorraine. Can you hear us okay? Yeah, can you hear us okay there, Lorraine? Okay. Technology is great when it works. She's, she's starting, so can, can you hear us, Lorraine? That's broadcasting. Broadcast, well, that might be her mute button that's on. I know, so. it looks as if it's ours. Uh, now we've lost our... We'll just give ourselves a few seconds. That's Lorraine back on screen again. Can you hear us at this stage, Lorraine? See, there's a mute button beside me. It shouldn't be on. That, that might mean that she has muted herself at her end. Just maybe if there's anybody on the comms end there, is there anything that can be done from your side for... Uh, well, no, you'll not because she's dropped off completely. So we'll maybe give... Uh, Tara, you, would, you like, would you like me to... Uh, do you have her notes? And then we can pick up Lorraine as we go along. I think if we could do that, that would be appreciated. Well, first of all, I want to thank you for accepting the paper. I know they were late during the week, but there was lots of causes, which I won't go over, but mm -hmm. we've been particularly busy, as you can understand. We wanted to get, get our paper to you rather than not. Okay, and as you were saying, my name is uh, Dominic McCulloch. I, I'm currently head of the European Union uh, Division in the Department of Finance, and I lead in replacement funding and Peace Plus uh, strands of the cross-departmental Future Policy and Finance Work Stream. I'm here with my colleague, Laura MacDonald, and, and we're more than happy to, to address any questions that uh, the, the uh, committee might have. I, I want to do some expl explaining first. Uh, the Future Policy and Finance Work Stream is led by the Department of Finance and is one of the five strands of the Future Relations Programme, and we report directly to the Future Relations Board. Uh, the replacement funding strand of this work stream, our focus is on uh, securing, securing replacement of the spending power that we currently derive from the EU funding sources and to coordinate Northern Ireland input uh, to Whitehall, Whitehall on domestic successor funding. That, that's a fairly complicated and a fairly challenging job, uh, but my team also lead on the shipping, finance and delivery of the Peace Plus programme and I'm centrally involved in that and uh, we also work with Northern Ireland accountable departments to uh, secure their input in the development of Peace Plus and indeed work with them as that programme uh, progresses towards agreement and uh, signing off by the executive. Um, I, as I said I want to thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak to you today. We provided a paper which gives a fairly, fairly sort of brief overview of the current funding position or EU funding replacement programme position as we currently understand it. Um, it is important to say 
uh, in discussing EU uh, future and future funding, uh, it, I think we need to look at what we received from the EU in the 2014 to 2020 multi-annual financial framework period. And in Northern Ireland, in total, we received 3.6 billion uh, euros. Uh, the biggest um, of these funds went uh, through the common, common agricultural policy, which obviously went through the, the agriculture department, who also delivered the rural development fund. The Peace Plus programme, which I have been responsible for, will replace the peace and interreg uh, element of uh, EU funding programmes, and it is the only programme that the EU, the Irish government and, and, and the, sort of the British government have uh, given um, full support to, and I'm certainly happy to talk through that, that particular programme. But we want to get that programme agreed as, as soon as possible to ensure ma maximum benefit goes to its intended beneficiaries. It is intended that the programme will be fully inclusive and that we will have it ag uh, uh, agreed as early in 2021 as possible. The final shape and size of that particular programme uh, is currently under discussion and certainly what we're focusing on at the moment is developing the programme with the uh, programme managing authority, the special European Union's programme body and also um, finalising funding, funding agreements with uh, uh, the UK government uh, but ultimately the Peace Plus programme will requirement, uh, require um, agreement from the Northern Ireland Executive, the Irish Government, the European Commission and the NSMC. And I know Gina was speaking to the, the committee last week and gave, gave a fairly uh, sort of thorough overview of how the programme was going. Um, looking at sort of the future funding programmes, uh, the Shared Prosperity Fund, which I'm sure you're aware of, was first promised in the 2017 uh, sort of Conservative ma Manifesto as a replacement for structural funds, with a commitment that those funds would at least replace in full um, uh, funding that was provided to devolved administrations. The structural funds were worth 750 million euros across the uh, multi-annual financial framework, and that included the rural development program. And as, as, as per the paper I provided, uh, we've been working with um, Westminster uh, departments to try to understand the potential parameters and quantum of funding the Shared Prosperity Fund will provide locally. Um, we're also considering the, the, um, the position on participation in Erasmus Plus and, and Horizon, and they're still subject to EU and UK negotiations. Uh, those programmes are both competitive and uh, work is ongoing in the Department for, uh, sorry, Department for the Economy to move those programmes forward. And we're also um, uh, working with the UK government just to clarify uh, this final position on other EU programmes, including uh, Connecting Europe Facility, uh, health programmes, COSME, and the Interreg B and C programmes. Unfortunately, at the moment, it doesn't look as if the UK will be participating in any of those programmes. So that, that, what I wanted to do is just give you an overview of, of the main areas of activity that we're involved in. And as I said, Laura and myself are happy to pick up on any questions you might have on, on any of those areas. Okay, thank you very much. I think we do have um, uh, Lorraine, possibly with a phone number on here rather than names. So I think maybe a computer mightn't have been working. Is um, Lorraine, are you are you there on the? Is uh, our comms able to unmute that uh, phone number that's on the audience list there? Maybe to to see if that is Lorraine and if she's able to. To participate, Lorraine, is that yourself there? Yes, it is. Can you hear me? Uh, yes, we can hear you now. That's grand. Uh, what we've done in your absence, I think we did, um, uh, there was a copy of your opening remarks which have been read out. Uh, we, are you happy enough with that or do you want to add anything to that? Uh, 
Excellent. Thank you very much, and I'm glad that you're you're almost. We can hear you loud and clear anyway, so that's that's perfect. I'll kick off with a few questions, and then move to Doug, and then round the committee. Um, and if I could begin with, I suppose, really in reading the the paper that was prepared, there were two things that sort of struck me. One is that if we have uh, what's been referred to as the the the, the EU finance details, so sort of funding that's going to ebb off as we go over in the next period of time. And the fact that there's reference to the Shared Prosperity Fund not yet being established in terms of where it's going to start to pick up, in my mind that kind of creates a little bit of a basin or a valley in between where there's a gap. Um, and it's in that gap that groups, uh, community associations, um, you know, existing programmes, uh, councils, right across the whole gambit are going to be saying, where's the funding going to come from? What do we do in that that sort of gap that there is as one uh, funding stream tapers off and the other one builds up and is it uh, an expectation that that will be seamless or will there be that gap between the two? Okay, well, uh, you, you've mentioned the uh, issue of tails there and that's something that, that we're very concerned about in terms of uh, accruing, receding from one programme period into another and certainly Laura and myself, we've been very proactive in pushing the, the Whitehall departments on how they, they calculate those tails and the basis for them uh, uh, considering those tails as part of replacement funding when in fact it is money that has been accrued and rolled over in, into, uh, progr into uh, annual budgets rather than EU budgets so we're very concerned about that. Uh, we've also been pressing um, uh, the Whitehall departments on, on clarity uh, about their intentions for Shared Prosperity Fund, both in quantum uh, and delivery, and also um, the sort of policy direction of Shared Prosperity Fund. Uh, your question about how do we ensure there's a gap with something like the Peace Programme, uh, the, 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 the Peace Programme will run for another three years, so there shouldn't actually be a gap in funding. But for other programmes, such as the, the ESF programme, yeah, there is the potential for a problem to be be created there in terms of um, no, no seamless transaction from one funding stream into a second funding stream. I don't know whether you wanted anything, anything Laura? Yeah, um, I know this methodology has been used for the agricultural funding um, and there has been there has been an announcement, the, the Chancellor did announce that there's a possibility that this TAILS issue could be applied to structural funds. Um, we have repeatedly objected to this methodology being used for the Shared Prosperity Fund particularly in Northern Ireland when we have used the M plus 3 period as um, a, a way to, for prudent expenditure, really. Um, it is really using an accrual um, and netting that off against any future monies that are due into Northern Ireland. Um, we are objecting to it. We have had conversations with um, Treasury, um, with um, the Ministry of Housing, Communities and Local Government as well as the Department of Work and Pensions and Cabinet Office about the implications of applying this methodology to any future funding coming into Northern Ireland. 
Um, there will be a pilot programme for Share Prosperity Fund being launched in January, but it, it, its worth is 220 million across the whole of the UK, which is um, significantly less than we were expecting. Um, with the share, full Share Prosperity Fund being launched in April 2021, but that will be subject to the 21-22 spending review for a multi-year um, budget after that. And I suppose the difficulty and concern certainly that I would have is that, I mean, EU funding has effectively become recurrent funding yeah. uh, and departments rely very heavily on it as almost being their only, um, not their only, but the majority of their ability to have money to spend to address priorities within their department as long as they maintain and tick the box of what the EU requires, but it also becomes money that is spent by government departments here to address their priorities, to address the executive priorities, and that in effect, if that money is to dry up, that would be equivalent to a considerable reduction in the block grant that there actually is um, here in Northern Ireland. So are you able in any shape or form at this stage to sort of say, this is the whole amount of money that Northern Ireland has to spend in a year and this is how much of it that comes from EU which is now under a question mark and therefore this is what we have to go to London and say well if you're going to replace it you know then this is what we need is that sort of being pulled together in some way? London would certainly be aware of our ask, and sort of want a better expression in terms yeah. of replacing EU funding. We've made it, made it very clear, both through the Department of Finance and departments individually have made it clear to London what, what their their position is. I think Laura, Laura has mentioned, we, we find it very frustrating in getting actual detail on the sort of the size of the Share Prosperity Fund and, and how the Share Prosperity Fund is going to be delivered. But one of the things that I call is that uh, we've also worked and we keep in regular contact with the Scottish and Welsh administrations and they're in a very similar position and certainly we, we're, we've got common ground with those three administrations in terms of how we want uh, to represent our cases to, uh, to, the, to the Treasury and to, to the Cabinet Office. You know, so. And in terms then of you know, articulating these views to London, again, um, maybe just to help, because that, that's something that we can say, we, we articulate our views to London, we're letting London know about, we're letting the Treasury know what it is. But I suppose one of the difficulties is that we have currently an SNP government in Scotland, we have a Labour government in Wales, and we've got a five-party executive here, none of which of all of those are, thankfully, Tory, uh, but yet they're the ones that are in uh, London and in the Treasury. So there, there's no even connectivity to sort of say that people are, are working together. It could, it could have the potential to become a, a them and us. But what involvement do you have with Treasury? Are there forums that you sit on and these issues are raised? Is there, um, do, you know, do, do you submit papers and other people submit papers and they're considered? Or does, is it effectively going to come down to, we, we let the Treasury know what our thoughts are, but they're going to tell us what's going to happen at the end of the day? Well, as officials, Laura and I and, and other officials in the Department of Finance, we do interact regularly sort of on a, on, a, on a weekly basis with all of those those departments but certainly uh, our minister Connor Murphy has um, uh, sought uh, meetings with the, the Scottish and Welsh ministers and sought meetings with the uh, with the, the relevant um, uh, ministers in, in the English English departments uh, there hasn't been a, a great success in meeting 
those ministers, there's a number, a number of uh, those uh, sort of getting those meetings in place. A number have been cancelled at short notice, and certainly uh, I, I know our minister has been very, very proactive in pushing for answers on that, and, and uh, both uh, officially and and through through ourselves. Okay. Look, finally, just um, for myself, um, is there an official audit kept of? where the EU money goes to in terms of groups and then is there a free flow of communication with those groups, with those organisations, be that via individual departments or centrally from the Department of Finance in terms of, you know, you're an organisation, you're a group, you're a, <coughs> uh, a whatever that is in receipt of EU money, it will cease on such and such a date and then we're going to have to look towards it. You know, is that communication being kept or is it like nine departments looking after nine in, in nine different ways? Well, I, I think that the individual departments will communicate that directly with, with the groups or beneficiaries, beneficiaries they work with. Speaking uh, on, sort of, on, on sort of my experience with the peace programme is certainly SEUPB keep the groups very, very, very well updated on, on the current position, both by meeting the groups and also through um, sort of their website and sort of social media outlets, you know. So, but I couldn't at the moment say a department has a, has a chain of communication. I'd be very, very surprised if they don't and they don't keep their groups up to date because it is obviously an area that's of interest to um, well, the groups that benefit from the EU money and the departments who manage that, that money. Might, might that be something that could be considered but in some way just to make sure that even somebody checks across the departments to make sure that that's happening because what, what would would be terrible would be that eight departments are doing it one doesn't and the one that doesn't do it means that there are groups that are finding out at the very last moment that they're in difficulty now i appreciate that may not be easy to draw together but even if it was a, just suggesting to the various departments are you doing this and can you let us know that you are it doesn't need to be the detail and the granular detail but just knowing that the departments are doing it would be very useful because then you can be assured that it's been fed right down uh, to the groups on the ground that, that they would know that yeah i i if, if you're content what i would suggest is we'll take that as an action and come back to the committee and give you a position on how communication is going with with different uh, uh, sort of uh, EU beneficiaries, uh, and we'll come back to you as soon as possible on that. Thank you. I'm going to pass the. the oh, sorry. Yes, go on ahead. Never end. Yes. Yes, I really like to come in on that from my previous experience in the Rural Development Programme as well. Uh, I mean, each programme will have a, a, a monitoring committee that has been set up as a requirement under EU legislation, uh, which has representatives of all the main uh, groups or beneficiaries on the programme. Um, and that's the main mechanism by which you know amendments to programs are discussed or any key developments. So I'm, I'm sure that a lot of this is probably groups are being kept informed through those monitoring committees. But the agreement with Don Mike, you know, that we can follow up on it anyway. But uh, it was just to point out that there are some mechanisms there uh, that we would be aware of. Okay, that's grand. Thank you very much, Lorraine, for that. I I'm going to pass now to Doug, the deputy chair. Thanks, Chair. Dominic, thank you um, for, for that. I mean, some of it can be quite complex at times, and, and I'll be honest with you, I didn't have a question just to the very end there, and I, and I just wanted just to just sort of to satisfy myself slightly. The, the SAUPB key milestones on the Peace, Peace Plus programme, mm -hmm. are they on track, as in timings-wise? Because it, it's down here to say that the consultation should have been November-December time. Yeah. Are, are we on track, or, or have we slipped... And if we have slipped, is is a reason why we've slipped? Well, well, 
I have been closely involved working with the SUPB over the past two years, ever since uh, Peace Plus was announced, and certainly it had, it had always been the intention to put a consultation in place for the latter part of this year. It has slipped. We are in the middle of December now, so there is no consultation out at the moment. The main reason for that is we have not been able to confirm the programme budget. You know, the programme budget at the moment is at $650 million when you add up the EU-UK contribution. You know, we, we, are, we are pressing the uh, Northern Ireland office on behalf of the UK government to give us a decision on that. That would allow us to go to the next stage and put in a consultation document in place that outlines the different themes that are being proposed in the programme, what it wants to achieve and the potential budget for that programme. So there has been slippage. But also I think it's fair to say that the, the COVID situation has impacted in terms of operational delivery and I, I just want to sort of note uh, the credit SEUPB with the work they've done on that, you know, in, in terms of pushing ahead, and I think they've done a very, very sort of commendable job in getting to where they have at the moment. So it would be our hope that, um, with sort of some sort of a, a sort of uh, fair wind, we can get a consultation document out in the early part of next year, uh, with the hope of getting the programme approved uh, during sort of mid 2021 to allow the programme to commence towards maybe the end of next next summer. But that's that's uh, that's the, uh, the sort of hope. At the moment, and we're working to do that. Yeah, and it's a it's a it's a it's a difficult it's a difficult situation we find ourselves in. And certainly, no criticism that things have slipped. Many things yeah, have yeah. many things have have slipped. And and I, I suppose as as long as when something slips, we're, we've got another milestone that we try to hit, and and we sort of amend our paperwork to 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 reflect that. Could you just sorry, um, Dominic, and, and I'm not sure I, I absolutely got that from the, the the notes I've got here and from what you said. I understand there's an issue with the, the, the budget. Is that because we've got the EU contribution, we've got Ireland's contribution, but the UK have not said what their contribution will be yet? Or am I, have I just got that mixed up a little bit? No, no you're right. The, the UK have committed £300 million to the programme, and they committed that in January 2019. The withdrawal agreement uh, commits the UK to maintaining funding proportions as they, as they were in the previous programme, and that, that, that would require the UK to provide an additional, I think it's... 235 million million euros. The UK feel that they've met their legal obligations according to the withdrawal agreement, um, but they are uh, considering the scope for additional uh, contribution to that. And, and I, I've been keeping in contact with my uh, colleagues in the Northern Ireland office in the UK position, and they know the Northern Ireland position. Uh, we have a paper uh, going to the Northern Ireland executive. Uh, we're waiting for it to be cleared to the executive to allow us to, to officially go to the UK and say, well, look. This is, these are your commitments, on, as we understand it. Can you confirm your position? Right. Yeah. So, okay. So there's a legal commitment which which they 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 must adhere to, but they 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 may be giving more, but you just haven't got that actual sort of confidence. That's right. Yeah, that, yeah. That's, so it could be a little bit of red tape that we're just trying to you know get through. Is that? Yeah, that's right. And is that likely to be fixed before the end of the year? Do we think or? Well, we're we're optimistic that we can get a get an outcome out of the out of the UK, uh, but you know it, it is um, it's important to recognise the contributions that have already been made. Yeah, you know, the, the programme is sitting at 600, 650 million. Uh, it would be great if we could get the programme uh, up to up to a higher level than that. You know, but there is a process to go through in understanding the UK's position and clarifying where they see their commitments beginning and end. You know, so that that hasn't completed. Yeah, we could, and, and I was and I was reading that it, it could be up to nearly a billion. Yeah. You know, can I just ask you another brief one? You probably might not know the answer to this, but I know that that um, the the EU health programmes, 
the UK government are not taking them any of those forward again. Yeah. What do we lose out on that besides the EHIC card? Is there anything else? Um, I wouldn't be 100% okay, sure. That's all right. no. um, I know it was worth um, half, half a million, um, but I don't know what programmes we'll lose out onto that. Um, oh. I don't know the monetary value, but I can find out and get back to you. No, don't worry. I mean, it was a throwaway question. I just, yeah. I just wondered if maybe you had something. That's fine. Thank you. Okay, um, I can see uh, a hand on display from, from Pat there that's been up for a while. So, Pat, do you want to come in at this stage? Yes, Chair, thank you. Uh, and uh, Doug came in with the question I was going to ask, but if you don't mind, I'd like to drill into it just a wee bit further. Um, because, uh, as Doug pointed out, there has been slippage in the development of the Peace Plus programme. Uh, and you've said there that uh, it's the result of the British government uh, not confirming that they are going to ensure uh, their commitment from the withdrawal agreement that they would ensure EU funding was retained. So, uh, I, I, I think that's around 335 million, is it, on top of the, the 300 million contribution that was originally committed? Is that right? Uh, it's actually two, 235 million, you know, but if, I think that it comes down to interpretation. You know how how you interpret the withdrawal agreement, and, and whilst the the UK government haven't officially said they uh, they feel that they've met their legal commitments, it's our understanding they feel that they've met their legal legal commitments. But we we haven't got an official. We met our legal commitments. We're not giving any additional funding to this. Uh, the UK government, as I understand it, are considering their position at the moment and will confirm it to us as soon as they can. And what's the delay in confirming that, do you know? Uh, well, the, the delay, I, I don't know what the delay in the UK is, because from our point of view, we've been uh, very proactive in uh, seeking confirmation, seeking clarification, and I know Minister Murphy has, has on a number of occasions, uh, sort of referenced the need for um, uh, a sort of closing that particular issue to allow the programme to proceed. And, and, and do you have any sort of timeline as to whether we might get an answer from the British government about that funding? I don't have a timeline. Uh, what I can guarantee you is uh, we are pushing for a decision on it, uh, and certainly I personally am pushing for a decision on it, but uh, I couldn't honestly say a decision will be taken in the next week or 10 days or, or a month. Uh, we will push for a decision and get it as quickly as we possibly can. Uh, it, it won't stop the programme. We, we need a clarification on the final funding uh, uh, envelope to allow us to move on into the consultation and getting the programme in place. And uh, if there's continued delay, uh, sorry, Chair, just uh, I'll just finish on this. If there is uh, continued delay and further slippage, is it in any way going to jeopardise the funding that has already been committed? It's certainly going to jeopardise the start of the Peace Plus programme, but would it uh, potentially jeopardise any of the funding that's already been committed? Thanks. <laughs> No, I, I don't think that would be the case. Um, uh, we have always worked on the basis that the uh, EU commitment is a very firm 
commitment. The UK government, is, uh, 300 million, is a very firm commitment, and the match funding would come from the Northern Ireland Executive to support that. So, uh, no, I would say there, there is no threat to the money being uh, withdrawn or sort of downgraded in any way. The money that's being confirmed at the moment. Okay, thanks, Dad. Thanks, Chair. Okay, uh, Martina. Dominic, I'll not ask you to agree with me, but it just sounds like Perfidious Albion again, you know, has uh, once again made a promise that they're backtracking on. The divorce bill, in terms of the British government's commitment in the in the withdrawal agreement, obviously that's um, that was nailed down like the uh, like the protocol and whilst there was some messing around in the internal market bill. I'm reminded of throughout the referendum on Brexit, there was promises made um, that the British government would replace the funding. For instance, I'm thinking of farmers. I remember we had a number of uh, meetings uh, with farmers who were promised from Brexiteers that they would get the, the single farm payments, as it was called then, the Pillar 1 and Pillar 2, that it would be replaced. And if you're talking 3.6 billion over the tranche from 2014 to 2020, which is 0.6 of a billion nearly per year. Um, what promise has been given? Well, we know the promise. What's going to be uh, the outcome of the mere 220 million that we're hearing now about the Shared Prosperity Fund? Is that to, um, to cater for the many farmers and others? who had once on a time secured European funding. Is everyone going to be trying to get their funding from that meagre pot? Yeah, yeah. It, it's, well, I suppose that the farm, the farm is sitting outside the Shared Prosperity Fund and there are separate yeah. arrangements yeah. for farming. But, and I think, Laura, you would have detail on that end of things. Yeah, um, so the farm funding allocations have been agreed. Um, I think it, it, uh, it amounts to something in the range of 330 million. Um, that's for the single farm payment side of things. Um, but as we stated earlier, there is this issue with the application of TAILS receipts to that funding, which equates to um, over a period of three years, 34 million loss. 34 million loss for farmers. Mm -hmm. That actually be the farmers themselves. Over three years. In their allocation. I don't know. It's a policy. I can go to the policy area and find that out for you. Um, I just know the top level figures, not the detail on the policy, but I will find that out for you. Yeah, well, that would be important. No, and the 220 uh, million then that's for the um, structural funds. Structural funds, yeah. Structural funds. The CRDF, ESF funding, yeah, and, yeah, and all yeah. of that. What would the allocation generally be? For the north out of that? We don't know at the uh, moment. Don't know that either? Well, we don't know what the allocation out of that 220 will be. They haven't discussed that with us yet. Um, we know that in the um, the Sharp Prosperity Fund, when it's launched, the, the, the value of it has been announced in the spend review as £1.5 um, for the UK over a year. Um, and again, but again, we don't know what the devolved share of that will be. Um, Structural funds over the period, as we said, 750 million over the last MFF, which is around about 100. Uh, about, uh, we sorry, got 750 million, million. And, but in yeah, this, there's 220 million in this envelope. For this year. Yeah. So, yeah. so uh, the promise that was made that there was going to be a replacement funding again. They are, they're, they have packaged this as a, a pilot programme for Shared Prosperity Fund, um, and, but that's the only detail that we have. So on it could that. get less as time goes on. 
Um, that, that is only for this financial year, financial and it has to be spent within this financial year. Okay. And the 1.5 billion will be subject to the spending review in 21, sorry, 22-22. And do we know the figure of, because I'm conscious of that, the 3.6 uh, billion share would have been the dedicated funds that came here? Yeah. Do we know what had been secured from the competitive funding streams? I'm conscious, say, for instance, Horizon 2020-80 billion of a pot in the research and development for Queen's University, Ulster University and other organisations and institutions that would have secured funding. Do we know in the north how much money for those institutions have been secured from the competitive funding streams? There would be different competitive funding streams, you know, whether it be Interreg, B and C, yeah. the competitive funds, and certainly I know in the, um, there was, I think there were 17 million uh, euros secured for competitive funding. Uh, through Interreg BNC in, in, in the current programme period. I, I haven't detail on, on the sort of the, the other other areas, but I can certainly... Uh, it would be useful, Chair, I think, if we could yeah. try to get that calculated around what the competitive uh, funding stream Yeah, I've got figures on what we did, what we have, what we received on the last MFF, yeah, but yeah, again, it's subject to negotiation, so yeah. we don't know what it will be going forward. So for Horizon, it was €104 million, Euro, and Erasmus, €39 million. So just so that I'm, I understand, so if, for instance, they had to match fund and they felt that they, the contribution that they would be making to a match fund, they might decide that they're not going to do that, so they're not going to participate in the programme? Yes, they might very well do that based on, on value for money investment. Uh, so if you, if you consider the two things, if one is negotiating what the terms of that participation would be within the EU, uh, under the new future relationship and then doing a value for money assessment on that and then deciding whether they would participate in those funds on that basis. And it's on that basis then they might decide, I'm reading here, they might um, decide on another programme. They're seeking participation in an Erasmus Plus as a region. So instead of, for instance, students going to Spain to learn a language, they might go to Liverpool. So I think that's, that's one option in terms of um, you know how they take or how they see um, filling the gap of the programmes that were there before. Um, so their own version of your Erasmus might be one option of that. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you all. I think you just confirmed it's an absolute mess. Thank you. 
Christopher, just no, okay, and I'm just on to the other members. I don't see any of the hands up there, but just if Trevor, George, or Pat, or sorry, Trevor, George, or Emma wants to to ask anything there, just go on ahead. Okay, that's grand. Okay. That's brilliant. Okay, um, look, thank you very much for coming up and, and presenting that. I appreciate that, that there um, is still a, a number of matters that are outstanding and, and things that need to be confirmed. And we need to, uh, really just the whole process seems to be something that whenever there's a lack of uh, substantial information, it just makes planning and preparation and organisation very, very difficult. Um, I know I struggle to keep an eye on one bank account, so I think you're doing a wonderful job looking after all that money and all that's there and keeping things into the right way. But we appreciate you coming along today. Sure, I have four children. I'm afraid to look at my bank account. <laughs> <laughs> well, sorry. And, and uh, um, thank you as well um, to uh, Lorraine, who's online as well. So, look, thank you very much. We'll take our ease for a moment just to yeah, let thank you, you thank uh, you. move thank on. You. Thank you. So we'll just hold off for a second. You start honestly, that sounded like I know, I started. Yeah, <laughs> no, don't, don't. We don't need so another you're, one. You're, you're not muted, Trevor. We've had a very busy afternoon dealing with Emma's constituency work, so we don't need Trevor. <laughs> we're exhausted listening to her. be too much for us. Okay, members, um, we'll move on then to item six um, the research and information service briefing paper on the international relations and comparisons with Scotland and Wales. It's on page 182 of the meeting pack. Mm -hmm. um, it was agreed to commission further research on the international relations as part of the committee's scrutiny of cross-cutting Brexit issues. Um, we sort of on the back of our visit to Washington way back in March, which feels like a lifetime ago now, having met the Welsh Fact and on the back of your visit to Washington. <laughs> yeah. I, I when you said that, people might think I did, you know, I did look at Marie when I said ours. <laughs> um, that we um, did meet the. Um, the Scottish and the Welsh offices there and saw just basically the work that was been undertaken. I have to say, I feel like that was a very detailed report that was presented to us there from the Research and Information Services and it gives a bit of interesting reading, just even to see the amount of um, places where Investa and I have active uh, people working in all the various countries and, you know, just wondering maybe what the feedback from that is uh, and if that's maybe just uh, being sort of under the auspices of Invest NI, but not the Northern Ireland Executive. And there may be some opportunities for us to explore some of that in the future. I think our workload, I could take the temperature, our workload is particularly crammed at the minute, but maybe if members were um, content to note the paper for now, we could invite the researcher to come in and give us a presentation when we get a space in the new year. Would that be agreeable? Agreed. Okay. Um, if we look then at item seven, the forward work programme, and uh, it's on page 212 of the meeting pack, um, I was going to suggest that we have the uh, January monitoring round uh, is listed for next Wednesday as an oral briefing. Um, I, I've kind of found the last couple that we've done, there aren't huge questions that couldn't be maybe dealt with by a written briefing and then if any members have any clarity that sought then we would be able um, to seek that clarity and just given that we've added the officials 
um, from the department for next week for an oral briefing on um, the Brexit process. Would members be happy if we, we seek a written briefing for that monitoring round and then any questions and queries can be raised under that section and seek the clarity? Martina? Uh, Chair, I would agree, but I would also recommend that you just replace that session there, the first session with the officials, because that might help us with the next session. Because both of them, there are, for instance, Article 2, I would like the officials to get me more information on that because I don't understand what was suggested about any changes in NIC and that you're also having, is it an oral briefing or is it a written briefing from the uh, the Joint Committee? That's Human Rights. an oral briefing. An oral, could, could they be in second? I would like to have the officials in first if it was possible so that I understand what's happening with Article right, 2. Right, can I just clarify the um, what you're looking for clarification on is... I mean, I was looking at the statement there, and it talks about the, the emissions in the Irish to Annex 2 of the protocol Annex rather two. than Article 2. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, 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 okay. Isn't okay, that, so they're all coming in an Article 2. The Annex 2, I that, think so, mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, I think there might be some relationship with both, but. Yeah. So but you're, you're saying you would like the officials. I would like the officials before, if that was possible. I have emailed and I have said that, that officials are asked to come prepared to answer questions about Annex 2, the emissions um, and the um, amendments. Just so we understand them. So yeah. We so, so we replace that monitoring round officials one with the officials that are going yeah. to discuss that and you'll make and sure they that they're prepared will, to... And if we can try then to bring the Brexit officials in first and then yeah. the... The, the others in second, if please. that's possible. If it's possible, if it suits people's okay. schedule. Yes, so uh, if, if departmental officials then will take the Article 2 protocol, those, the quality yeah. commission. There's, th there's three groups there we'll have to try and so, okay. but, but we'll try to do that. Yes, and then after we'll do the written briefing. We'll um, well, the written members. briefing on the monitoring round okay. then, yeah. Right, okay, members content with that? I think we've ourselves levelled out from that, thank you. Um, then we can move on then to, uh, if you're content to note the rest of the forward work programme, we can move on then. Sorry, Chair, just that Emma was trying to make a point one stage, but she couldn't get unmuted. Oh, oh right, okay. Uh, Emma, if you want to, I hope that you can be unmuted there for it to. I, I know, I want to. Can you hear me? Eh? Yes, we can indeed, yes. No, it's all right. Well, it should be muted on that, and then when I'm trying to say it's not muted. It was just on the, on the, the briefing paper that you had provided, or that the, the base team had provided, yes. um, about certain international relations and the fact that our strategy in terms of international relations is, is quite up, up, um, outdated, and probably maybe other devolved administrations are doing quite a bit better than the North. And it's just obviously going into this period that we're going into, we can see the impact that uh, particularly speakers from the US have had in, in recent times and going far, as far back as 1998 and you know as we're now in this period of constitutional change and Brexit and everything that's happened it's it's probably something that we should be focusing on um, and that you know we're we're engaging with others and we can see the impact that would have and obviously we're now going to have a Brussels office in the north but probably looking towards Brussels going forward uh, especially for, for people in the North still considering themselves as, as European citizens and still being treated as your European citizens is something to be conscious of. Yeah, absolutely. And, and look, being a realist, um, I, there will be future trade agreements between the UK and many other countries around the world. And, and if there was 
an executive presence in some of those places or an executive presence that could be diverted. It could be putting forward a particularly Northern Ireland perspective, which may be of benefit. And, and just the enlightening part for me was just the amount of offices and locations that InvestNI is actually a part of, but as part of the InvestNI family rather than maybe being part of the Northern Ireland executive family, although one does, they all eventually lead up to the top, but maybe just having a bit more uh, closer scrutiny and closer control of what those, those that work that's being done could be of real benefit uh, from a trade perspective for, for ourselves going forward. But definitely, I think it's something, Emma, that's worthy of being brought back very early uh, into the new year. Members, item eight is the correspondence. There are eight items of correspondence there. Um, item 8.2, uh, which is at page 222 of the meeting packet, is a response from the Executive Office on the committee's request for information on the Historical Institutional Abuse Support Service, um, which has not yet been launched and when it is expected to be launched. The Department has advised that on the 29th of October, officials wrote to the five victims and survivors group confirming that the victims and survivors service had been appointed to deliver a package of services to HIA victims and survivors from the 2nd of November and support has been available from the VSS Health and Wellbeing Case Manager for those with pressing and immediate needs. The service was formally launched on the 1st of December. Uh, the delay hasn't been explained but I suppose at least it has actually launched. Um, there is an oral briefing uh, due from the new Commissioner for Survivors and Institutional Childhood Abuse has been provisionally scheduled for our meeting on the 27th of January 2021 and that will give members the opportunity to explore any, any issues. Fiona Ryan takes up her position on Monday so we will get that session confirmed at that point. Are members content to note? I'll go Monday. Chair, just on that issue, I think uh, I appreciate um, that, you know, the office has only just been established and people are fighting their feet and, and what have you. But I think it, it's important that we engage as a committee, whether yourself as the chair and the deputy chair going together at the start, but I think it's important that we hear from the groups in terms of either collective or individual experience um, going forward, because I know that People have been contacted, members of the committee have been contacted by groups and individuals expressing concern. And I just think it's really important at this early stage that we get this right um, because we do not want a situation to develop, and I'm not suggesting for one second that it would, um, but we don't want a situation to develop where there's a breakdown in relations between groups or individuals and a newly established office. And it's important that as soon as um, you know we're out of the traps on this, that it, it's functioning well and people are satisfied with the experience that they're having. So if I could suggest if we can find a slot soon to hear from groups, yes. um, I think that would be a, use, a good use of the committee's time. Certainly. Okay, I think that's something that certainly, if, if it was Chair and Deputy... Chair, we would be we would be happy to to get launched into that as, as quickly as we can because you're right. There's an opportunity here for just everything to be put on the right track, and yes. I think that we should do everything that's within our power to mm -hmm. make sure that 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 happens. Yeah, Martina. No, no. Look, uh, I was just asking. Is Monday she starts? Just uh, yes, coming yeah. Monday coming. Yeah. Is it? yeah. Chair, and can I just can I just add into the confusion of that? I mean, I think we need to do that before we meet the Corsica. 
because um, we need to understand that. But we also have a, we also have um, as part of our forward work program, uh, historical abuse engagement, um, historical institutional abuse engagement with institution, um, briefing with the TEO officials. I mean that's the thirteenth of this January, um, and I, you know it'd be really good to speak to them before we speak to the TEO, so we know the real issue. So it really tightens it down to the you know it's possibly the. As soon as we come back, yeah, if that's possible, sure. Okay, that's something that we could set up. Um, yeah, if you give me the details of yeah. who, who wants to meet with you. Okay, perfect. That's good. That's a that's an action, it's there, and I'm glad that it's it's actually, you know, I think that there is. It's great to see that we're all working very much together in this, and we're all on the same page. That and I think that that spread right across. So let's hope we can help to to do our bit in that as well. Um, Item 8.9 um, is a bit of a follow-on. Just in the, it's a response to the department um, from the department to the committee's request for an update on the treasury around ensuring that those HIA payments made through the redress board to those residing in Britain will not be liable to taxation or national insurance deductions and will also not affect any social security payments. A number of us had been lobbied mm -hmm. on the committee to in that. Uh, in relation to benefits, officials are still in discussion with the Treasury and with the Department of Work and Pensions but are hopeful of a positive outcome. With regards to taxation, HMRC have confirmed that an award of compensation does not give rise to a charge to any tax or the liability to pay national insurance contributions and this applies in Great Britain as well as here. So that's a bit of movement and hopefully that will get that's some good. successful yep. uh, conclusion to that loop. So are members content to note? Yep. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, content to note the retaining correspondence that's on the list. Yep. Okay, item nine, chairman's business, nothing at this stage. Item 10, any other business? Then we can move to item 11. The date, time and place of the next meeting will be at two o'clock next Wednesday afternoon. Members, thank you very much for your cooperation this afternoon. And uh, we'll conclude the meeting there. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Um,